Amen, amen. If you would be seated, thank you so much for joining us. It is good to be here, and I am just so grateful week in and week out that we can celebrate all things together as a church family. I know uh, Meredith and the kids volunteers yesterday hosted a parents' night out. Some of you took your kids, dropped them off. Hopefully you got to get some Christmas shopping done or a date night or something like that. They had a fun time. Hopefully you had a fun time. This coming Friday is our Christmas party, our all-church Christmas party. There is still time to sign up. But please sign up. I mean, we're not going to turn you away at the door, but I might be a little frustrated as you come in the door. If you don't just sign up and let us know you're coming because we have got food and fun uh, planned and prepared for you guys. And we are really looking forward to an opportunity to celebrate together. With that in mind, it's an all-church Christmas party, but the Christmas season is that part of the year where everyone is a little more receptive to an invitation to church. And maybe if people aren't receptive to an invitation to church, they would come to a Christmas party with you. I'm not saying you should lie, but don't even tell them it's a church party. Just tell them it's a Christmas party, invite them in, and we would love to have them that we might get to meet uh, you and your friends and your coworkers and share the love of Jesus with them. Also, every week we get to worship together. Man, I am so grateful for that. Christmas, as Nick has already alluded to, can be a challenging season, depending on what's going on in life or where you are, where your family is, the things that are facing the obstacles you're facing. It can be a challenging season, but it is still, regardless of what we're going through, the most wonderful time of the year because we get to celebrate together as the church the message, God with us. And that's what we're talking about as we make our way through this study. But this year has been especially fun for me and my family because this year we get to celebrate. I get to see Christmas through the eyes of a two-year-old. Now, our little girl just turned two, and what I've learned is Christmas changes every year. Her first Christmas, she was two months old, and she had no idea what was going on. In fact, if we had to get some Christmas stuff done, we would just lay her down and walk away because she couldn't go anywhere. And it was a fun Christmas season trying to figure out life as new parents. Last year, she was just uh, just over a year old, and she was fascinated by everything but didn't understand anything. This year, I've decided, I don't know what life is like with a three-year-old, but this year is the best because she has zero expectations expectations for Christmas, but everything is exciting. Like next year, she's going to expect presents and she's going to expect Christmas lights. This year, everything is just a tremendous blessing. And so we're like doing all of these traditions that I kind of taken for granted over the years. If we need to get out of the house, we just drive through neighborhoods and look at Christmas lights and she sits in her car seat and just her eyes are open. And she's just so exciting. The only problem is she got a little of her mom in her because we pulled into our driveway with dark house and she said, daddy, lights on my house. And I was like, spending too much time. You're already making lists for me with your mom, but we've been doing all kinds of fun things. We, uh, we baked some Christmas cookies, and she loved those. We watched some of the classic Christmas movies, like the Santa Claus with Tim Allen, and she loved every second of it, or Home Alone, or Die Hard, all the really good Christmas movies, and she was just on the edge of her seat for all of those. Uh, Wendy got all of our kids in our kids' ministry an Advent calendar that's full of chocolate, so every day, like, we start our day with the Advent and Christmas, and Brighton is just so excited, but what I've really been enjoying is this past week, we finished decorating our house, and as we were setting things up, I got this little kids' nativity out that Brighton got last year, and it just means, kids means it's just everything is very colorful and indestructive, and we were setting up all the little pieces, and we, we kind of started in reverse order, so I got the, the stable set up, and I got the animals and the sheep and the donkeys, which she thinks are horses because she's never seen a donkey, like walking through all the pieces and Mary and Joseph. And then last of all, we got the little baby Jesus out and we put him in the middle of the manger scene. I talked to Brighton as little as she is. I said, this is 
baby Jesus. And she's in this phase right now that she just loves babies. And so she was so excited, baby Jesus and baby Jesus. And then we proceeded to finish decorating our Christmas tree and several of our ornaments had that nativity scene on it. And I would, we have this system in our house where I unpack the ornaments, I hand the non-breakable ones to Brighton and then she hands them to her mom who has final say over where they go on the Christmas tree. And every time Brighton would hand an ornament to her mom, she would just say, baby Jesus, baby Jesus. You can't say it that clearly. It's like the cutest thing in the world. And like the fourth or fifth ornament, I finally said, Brighton, you know, baby Jesus grew up like you're going to grow up. She had this like really concerned, almost distraught look on her face. And she said, no, daddy, baby Jesus. I was like, all right, next year as a three-year-old, we'll tackle the fact that Jesus did grow up. But it did get me thinking, like as we celebrate Christmas and we love the traditions and even the Christmas story, which is the incarnation, maybe the most incredible miracle. Like when we think of Jesus, do we have a tendency, if we're honest, to think of Jesus as sweet baby Jesus? Or as our faith has grown, have we wrapped our mind around the idea that Jesus also grew? and who he is, or, or like the scene from Talladega Nights. Have you seen that movie? Raise your hand if you have. I thought this was a church full of Christians. Um, where Ricky Bobby, whatever the guy's name, the, I forget his name, Will Ferrell's praying, and he's, he's praying, and it's this prayer. I wanted to show the clip, but in this prayer, there's more cuss words than I've said in my entire life. And so I thought, I'm not going to do this at church. But he prays to baby Jesus, and even his wife interrupts, and she's like, you know he grew up. And he's like, I love baby Jesus, sweet six-pound, five-ounce baby Jesus. I love, he literally says, I love Christmas Jesus most of all, which is kind of silly, but it's really sad if you think about if you think about it, is our is our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is, and even the implication, the reality of the incarnation growing with us as our faith grows, or do we have a tendency when things get frustrating or life gets out of control or Christmas isn't as much of a joyful celebration as we hope for to recoil back to the little baby Jesus we're comfortable with and we grew up with? We are in a study studying over the course of the next few weeks, studying the incarnation because it is perhaps, right there with the resurrection, the most incredible miracle. And in Matthew chapter 1, an angel appears to Joseph, and Mary is uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. She's a virgin betrothed to be, jo- to be married to Joseph. And an angel shows up in Matthew chapter 1, and the angel says this. It says, Joseph, son of David. Okay, Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then the angel quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. He says this He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is the angel, as he shows up and he gives this incredible birth announcement about the incarnation of Jesus, the, the very first Christmas celebration of Christ's arrival to Joseph. He's quoting an Old Testament prophecy some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he speaks and he writes down this prophecy that the virgin would come and that God would not only save the people from the the, uh, effects of their their sin in the moment, but he would save them from the long-lasting effects of their sin through Christ. And even in Isaiah's day, people tried to wrap their mind around, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son? If that's not mind-blowing enough, what does it mean, Emmanuel, that God will be with his people? And so Isaiah, just two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he clarified for the, for the uh, 7th century B.C. reader and for us today what it means, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Then another prophecy says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so what is, this is what we're unpacking over this Christmas season. What are these names? What, is the, what does it mean that God is with us? What does it mean that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? Because these names weren't nicknames given to Jesus. They were uh, attri- or names describing his character, who he was, his attributes, so that we could understand at least in part, the implication, the reality of the promise, the prophecy, the purpose of Jesus, that he is God with us. So today we're going to look at the second name of Jesus, Mighty God. Mighty God. The Hebrew word for Mighty God is El Gibor. Now, I took eight weeks of Hebrew in Bible college. Now, it was 12 years ago, but I consider myself an expert in the Hebrew language after those eight weeks. And so I got on Google, and I looked up, what does El Gabor mean? What is it, it's translated in our English trans- translation, mighty God, but what are the nuances behind it? And I found that the word for mighty, it means mighty, obviously, but it means strong, like a warrior, more specifically, a champion. And so I went to Carissa, and I always like to share with her my sermon research as I'm doing it to make sure I'm not completely out of line, and the Holy Spirit's convicting her the way he's convicting me. And I went to her, and I said, Carissa, we're, t- we're studying, you know, mighty God, the Hebrew word is El Gabor. I found the perfect Hebrew word that you can use to describe me to all of your friends. Not the God part, but the mighty part. When she just laughed at me, I don't understand. So, you know, I went back out in the, the garage gym, and I'm working to be mighty, El Gabor. But the truth is, I, I say that in jest, because with our mortal minds, we can't really wrap our mind around what is the, what is mighty? Like we think about physical strength or stamina or size, but the word for mighty is really uh, beyond mine. And in all honesty, yeah, I thought about this name for Jesus and began to unpack it over the course of the week. It got a little overwhelmed because how can we understand the mighty nature of the almighty God? In fact, Job, the Old Testament book of Job, to his friends, he says, can you find out the depths of the things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty. And Job's point is, as, as he looks on his life, as he reflects on the things going on in his life and the God he grew up learning about and the God he had served and the God who seemingly was taking everything away from him, he's like, I can't fathom not only the way God thinks, but the, the, the ends of his strength. Like when I think about the Almighty God, like it is beyond comprehension. And, and so today, we can't fully grasp or internalize the truth of an Almighty God, but we can look for illustrations of his might. And so as I was thinking about this sermon, I started flipping through the Bible, thinking, what are some illustrations of God's might so we can see his might on display? And I think any further than Genesis chapter 1, and you see creation story. You think, man, God spoke creation into an exist- to an existence. That's mighty. And I continued flipping through the story, and I saw uh, Abraham and Sarah have a child well past the age of child. Like, that's a mighty God who can do that. He established a nation. He led the people out of Israel through the Red Sea, provided for the manna. Like, one thing after another, these demonstrations of God's might. And then all of a sudden, I was more overwhelmed than when I started because there were so many things to point to. I started just simply praying like, God, what do you want to say? Like, what do you want to say to me? Like, what do you want to say to your church that we might be moved by the mighty God? And on Wednesday, uh, when my sermon should be well underway, I was getting incredibly anxious because I didn't know which direction to take this sermon. It just happened to be a day of prayer and fasting. And so I tried to develop that rhythm again in my life. 
And I got this undeniable conviction from the Holy Spirit. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but as clear as I can say, the Holy Spirit just communicated to me through this conviction. As I was reading in the book of Hebrews, in my prayer time, my personal prayer time, he, the Holy Spirit just said, just tell them this. Tell, tell them this. I was in Hebrews chapter 1. And I don't know if you've ever heard, my, we say in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. Like one of the joys of walking with Jesus is he just guides and directs our step when we lean in to listen. So I started thinking, like, what do you mean? Like the story of Hebrews is not exactly the story of the incarnation. Like it's the story that the, some writer who we don't even know wrote to a group of Christians who had started, started off strong with Jesus and they started off walking with him. But when things got difficult and trials and temptations arose, they, they didn't want to turn their back on Jesus, but they wanted to recoil back to a more familiar version of Jesus. For them, it was a law-based, legal-based Jesus. They wanted to go back to the Old Testament system because that's what they grew up with. It's what they knew. It's what they understand. Maybe for us, it's we want to go back to that cute, little, comfortable baby Jesus in a manger, like baby Jesus, as life gets difficult. But to the Hebrew audience, in Hebrews chapter 5, end of Hebrews chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, about this, see, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Not exactly kind to his audience. For though by this time, he goes on, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, man, you should be teaching Sunday school, but you need to go back to Sunday school. You should be like preaching on Sunday, but instead you need to sit under the felt board and see the stories of God unfold again. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's just talking about the lack of spiritual growth seen in the church. It says, therefore, let us leave. I find this text so convicting. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I know that's a lot to take in, but basically what the Hebrew writer is saying is, man, you should be further along in your faith. You want to go back to the temple. You want to go back to the Old Testament system. You know it's not a good system. You know it's not a complete view of who the Holy Spirit is and what God has done in Christ, but it's what you grew up with. It's the Sunday school where you were raised, and you kind of want to recoil back in your frustration, in your fear to this elementary understanding of faith. Not that there's anything elementary about the resurrection of the dead, but once you get the fact that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth, who lived and died on a cross for our sins, was thrown into a tomb, but raised to life, like you've got to move on to spiritual maturity. And at the risk of sounding offensive, nearly sacrilegious, like we've got to move on from baby Jesus in a manger to a God who is mighty God. In the Holy Spirit over the course of the last two years, I have about 17 hours of material here I'd love to share with you has been teaching me that the Jesus I grew up with is more mighty than I can understand, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he is gracious regardless of circumstances. And while we have this temptation, not just with spirituality, but in life, to go back to where we are comfortable, the truth in all of life is you're either growing or you're dying. You're either moving forward or moving backwards. If you want evidence of that, you have to look no further than your savings account. Right? You want to stack, stash all this money and you want to put it in your savings account, but inflation is outpacing interest like six to one. And you realize you want to take this money and just put it in savings. But it's, if it's not growing, it's actually dying. And so it is spiritually. Like If we aren't investing our time and our energy in following Jesus, we're actually losing ground. So what is the fix? 
That's the longest introduction I've ever read. What is the fix? The writer of Hebrews says this, fix your eyes on Jesus, for he is the founder, the champion of our faith. He is the perfecter. Look to him to see him for who he truly is. Lean in for understanding. Ask for the implications and the application for your life, and then follow after Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's exactly what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to transition Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I would like to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see the things he has to say about God as mighty God. Father, Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that we get to gather together as your people. And the Christmas season can be a season of tremendous joy and celebration. It can be exuberance and excitement, like as we look at it through the eyes of a two-year-old. But at the same time, it can be a, a painful reminder of our past. It can be a painful reminder of the loss of loved ones or or miracles that seemingly have gone unanswered as we celebrate the miracle of Jesus. Today, Father, I pray that as a church, your Holy Spirit would bring to light the things you would have to say to us, that we might celebrate the incarnation of Christ, the, the baby Jesus who came into a manger, as stepped down from heaven's uh, throne to hold Mary's hand. But at the same time, you said the virgin would be a child and give birth to a son. He would be wonderful counselor, mighty God. Father, give us eyes to see who you are as mighty God, that we might live life under you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. Christmas story is, in fact, in the book of Hebrews. I did not know this until Wednesday, uh, but now you will know. Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, and we're going to just look at a few different things along the way. So if you have a Bible, if you can find a Bible, I encourage you to follow along because it will not be on the screen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying to the audience in the first century and what he's saying to us almost 2,000 years later is that there was a time where God the Father, and it's talking about the Trinitarian nature of God, that God the Father spoke to people through prophets. Just like Isaiah the prophet prophesied about the coming of Jesus some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We think back to Moses and Samuel and David and these names that we grew up with Sunday school. And what, what the Holy Spirit is saying through the writer of Hebrews is that there was a time where God communicated clearly or relatively clearly with his people through the prophet. They heard the word of God. They wrote the word of God. They preached the word of God. And the people like us often ignored the word of God. But the encouragement was to respond to the word of God. And then he goes on in verse 2, he says, but in the last days, and so there's this shift in the timeline of human history. In the last days, he has spoken to us, to the church, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so we see this massive shift, just the two verses into Hebrews. It says, in the last days, in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people, gave clear instruction so that people would know who God is by the prophets. But in the last days, meaning the time when Jesus came into this world, in the Old Testament time, was drawn to a conclusion because it saw its, the prophecy, saw their fulfillment in Christ. In the last days, which we are living in right now, God spoke clearly to us through his son. I love the way that John, the follower of Jesus in his gospel, said it in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says this, he says, in the beginning, so he takes you all the way back to Genesis, was the Word, capital W, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that has been made. And so what John is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is God. But he is also the word of God. He is God's message to his people. It's not that Jesus just showed up and preached the word of God, though he did that. It's that Jesus showed up 
as the word of God, that in a way that blows our mind, Jesus was God's message. He was love personified. He was God for us to understand. The same Jesus who was there when the world was created, who spoke it into existence with the Father, came so that the creation would understand the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then the writer of Hebrew goes on, Hebrews goes on in verse 3, says this, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And it's this illustration of the sun's rays, the radiance of the sun. Like as the, the sun's rays reflect the glory of the sun, so Jesus reflects the glory of God because he is the exact imprint of his nature. Again, all through scripture, Jesus is fully man, but he was fully God in a way that we would be able to understand who God is. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I love this because we're talking about what does it mean that Jesus is mighty God? And what is more mighty than God being able to hold the universe together by his word? I mean, he spoke it into existence and he's using his word to hold the universe together. I was thinking about it today and like how far I fall short of God and his glory and his mind. Like I can't even get my dog to sit, stay, or stop barking with my word. Jesus is holding the universe together with his. And I'm not the sci a scientist, I'm the son of a scientist, but I read what the scientists say, and they say this about the universe that God holds together by his word. He says, our solar system has a diameter of approximately 7.5 billion miles. If you got in a car and started driving at 65 miles an hour, to put it in context, to, to get across our solar system, it would take you one, I'm sorry, 13,172 years, or 411 of my lifetime so far. And that's just our solar system, right? Astrom astronomers say there's over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone, over 50 billion galaxies in the universe, and the universe is ever expanding. Like that is what God, well, that is what Jesus as mighty God is holding together by his voice. And then over the course of the next several verses through the end of chapter one, he just compares Jesus to the angels. And he says, Jesus is greater than the angels. And there's this, this beautiful illustration because you think of all the times angels show up in scripture, like Joseph, when the angel shows up, Joseph is terrified because the angel is, is brilliant in appearance, he is mighty. And yet Jesus is above the angels. Then in Hebrews chapter two, verse five, it says, for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Then he says this, he says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? So track with me. As the writer of Hebrews is unfolding this beautiful story, the Christmas story, the incarnation of Jesus, he says like God was there, Jesus was there with God when the world was created. Like blows our mind. Okay, we accept that. And then uh, now he is the word of God to communicate who God is to his people. That is the, the incarnation. He's the radiance of his glory. He, he's so mighty. He's so powerful that he upholds the universe by his word. And then in verse six, he says, it, of chapter two, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Do you ever think about God when you do think about his mind? Like, man, but who am I? Like, who am I that God would be mindful of me? Like, that's what I think about. Because if you're ever in the, the presence of, have you ever been in the presence of someone that's just incredibly impressive? I mean, I stand up here every week, and I know you guys are very humbled, but like, if you're in the presence of someone very impressive, 
How do you feel? You feel like you got to figure out, like, can I even approach them? What would they think? What would they about me? What would they say to me? I, I, was try, I was racking my mind trying to think of, like, have I ever been in the presence of someone really impressive? And the only thing that comes to mind, I, I lead a very exciting life. A few years ago, several years ago, actually, Carissa and I got invited to, or we were given tickets to a UCF basketball game. Now, I love UCF football. UCF basketball stinks. They're not good. But I thought I'd go cheer them on. And they were box seats. And I've never said in box seats. So I was like, that's pretty cool. We go. I mean, I realize why they gave us box seats. There's only like 17 people in the whole arena. But nonetheless, we got there early. We got in our box. My parents came with us and got the, the popcorn, the hot dog, the, the 75-ounce soda, whatever. I don't know. We were, like, we were there. And I was so excited. I watched this stinky basketball team lose the, the next game. And this was the time where Michael Jordan's son was playing for UCF basketball. Um, and it never crossed my mind until a few minutes after tip-off when the door to our box opened. I don't know how we got these stinging tickets. And in comes Michael Jordan. Like, there's a debate, like the greatest basketball player of all time. I've only met one of them, and so I will say Michael Jordan, squarely the greatest basketball player of all time. And I was pretty young when he was super great, but nonetheless, he walked in, and the, the energy in the room just changed. He walked in. He had about seven, seven guys with him who were all his size or bigger, and we were sitting in the corner of this box. It was a pretty good-sized box. No one else was there. My family, Chris and I, and my parents, and Michael Jordan and his, his buds or whatever security team. And so, like, he sits on the other side, never even looked at us, obviously, but it, obviously, I stopped watching basketball, and I spent the next three quarters, or it's bas uh, college half, half, thinking about, like, I want to talk to Michael Jordan. Like, do you think? And I, like, I'd lean over and ask Chris. I was like, hey, you think, like, if I went over there and talked to Michael Jordan, like, you think he'd talk to me? And she's like, yeah, probably not. And I was like, I'll never get another chance. And so, like, the whole game, UCF's getting blown out. I'm, like, working up the, the courage. And I get the program out. I flipped the picture of his son. I was like, I'm going to use his son and a marker, and I'm just going to ask for Michael Jordan's autograph, this world champion, greatest basketball player of all time. I, I kid you not, I got up out of my seat, I turned toward him, I took half a step, and all seven of his bodyguards got up and said no. Never even looked at me. And I was just like brokenhearted. And it's like, I'm, I don't like LeBron James, but I'm the biggest LeBron James fan in the whole world right now, right? Because Michael Jordan wouldn't speak to me. But I realized, I realized like, he didn't care about me. Like, I was in the presence of a champion, but he didn't care about speaking to me at all. And that's the way we think in our human terms. But we serve a God mightier than Michael, infinitely mightier than Michael Jordan, and much kinder, <laughs> who stepped down from heaven's throne. Like, he didn't make us work up courage to find a way to him. He sent his son in a way that we would be able to grasp him so that we might know Jesus. In all of his might, like he did set some of his uh, attributes aside temporarily so he could take on the form of a man, but he brought all of the might of God born in a manger, that even in that moment, as he reached out and held Mary's hand, he was still mighty God. And He's the, he, he, he came to earth so that we would find a way to him. I just want to, for the sake of time, we'll fast forward through the rest of my sermon. But I want you to look at a verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says this. It says, for it was fitting that he, Jesus, for, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And what he's talking about is the incarnation, that God in all of his glory came and suffered as a man 
so that he could be the founder of our salvation. Now, the, the Greek word there is actually, the word founder, perhaps, it's, it's really the word champion. And the champion, not as someone who is a victor, but as some, though that is true, as someone who goes out and fights on behalf of someone else. It, the, the perfect illustration is the story of David and Goliath. In the old days, the spare mass casualties, the two armies would line up on one side. And we have this picture in the Bible of the nation of Israel on one side and the Philistine nation on the other side. And so the Philistine nation, they looked around and they found the biggest, strongest man, Goliath. And he was a head taller, several heads taller than everyone else. And so they sent him out fully armed, fully equipped. And they, he challenged the Hebrew people. Like, we could go to battle. We could clash and lose a lot of life. Or you could just send out your champion to fight on behalf of you and whoever wins we'll just take the result and that'll be the end of the battle. And so the Hebrew people, like they look around and they couldn't find anyone. Everyone was scared to death. Goliath was twice their size. He was stronger than they could wrap their minds around. And so they just kind of cowered in fear until this shepherd boy shows up. And he understood that God was mightier than the mightiest champion from the Philistines. And so he takes five stones and he goes out and you know the rest of the story. And we read that story and we get a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, right? He came to fight the battle for us. He was our champion. And the implication of that, we are still experiencing the benefit of. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so, so Jesus comes as our champion, and in doing so, he delivered us from the thing that we are most terrified of, right? If we're honest, the thing we are most terrified of is death. We face illness and diagnosis, and we're scared because, because of death. Um, Leo Tolstoy, the author, who is too brilliant for me to read, said this, and I thought it was telling even nearly 100 years later of our story. So something strange, seeing all of his fame of his writing and his uh, notoriety. He said, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. He said, I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part increased. My name was respected. I had enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. He was going through a midlife existential crisis. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one I cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only I will not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have ever written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. For a time, it is possible to live intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud, and a stupid fraud at that. How often I have been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, just live, but I no longer can do that. And I know that's a long quote, and I really put it in there so you would think I was brilliant, but the truth is we all can relate to that in some way or another. Like we have this fear of death, especially if we view death 
as final. Death is terrifying when we think of it as our final end. In fact, if you think that, there's an enormous pressure to experience everything you want to experience right now. Because if you miss out on something, you are bitter. If you, for example, like if you're single and you don't find love and happiness in marriage, you get desperate because this is your only life. This is your only shot. Or you start to panic. Maybe like when you start to panic when you see yourself aging and you realize that as you age, as you gray, as you wrinkle, as your body uh, loses strength, you're actually in the process of dying. And so we do everything we can to reverse the effects of it. You go and women get Botox and men buy a Corvette and unbutton their shirt down to their belly button and do all kinds of stupid things because we're trying to put off or prolong our death. Or maybe when you get older, you start to obsess about building a legacy because more than anything, you want to be remembered. And the idea that in a generation, no no one will remember your name in two generations, not even your family will remember your name. Sometimes you're terrified of death because you fear the judgment of God. And so you start obsessing about appeasing him and wondering if you've done enough to go to heaven. Here's the good news of serving a mighty God from Hebrews that our champion, Jesus, took our greatest fear and he put it away and he did it all by himself. That there's nothing you have to do to defeat death. It wasn't easy for Jesus You remember him agonizing in the garden where he was so stressed about not just his impending physical death, but the weight of the sin of all the world resting on his shoulders that his capillaries began to burst and it looked like he was sweating drops of blood. He was agonizing over it. But he defeated death and he has taken away our fear. He's taken away the enemy's greatest weapon. And when we think about the might of God, there's nothing I think that communicates the might of God than defeating the undefeated champion in this world, which is death. He says, greater is uh, you who is in the world because I have overcome the world. That Jesus is our champion, this baby born in a manger would grow up, he would take the sins of the world on his shoulder, and uh, he would be mighty God for us. He would be our champion fighting the enemy that we could not defeat while we cowered in fear so that it would lose its power over us. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as we come full circle, as we celebrate Christmas, what do we think about when we think about God? We think about little baby Jesus, the cute little baby Jesus, which he surely was, tucked away into a manger. There's no room for him in an and the, the, the donkeys and the camels and the shepherds and the wise men. Or do we realize that Jesus himself was mighty God, that he was our champion to defeat the one who had defeated everyone before him, the enemy who had taken away the, the enemy's greatest weapon, a God who is mighty enough to champion for us, defeating the undefeated. And if he can defeat death, he can defeat anything else we face in life. He can defeat uh, insecurity. He can, can defeat uh, discontentment with our relationship status or our family status. He can defeat disease and death, divorce. He can come alongside and care for the most intimate moments of our life because as he ends this passage in Hebrew, he says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted in every way. That Jesus was born in a manger as mighty God the fullness and the glory and the strength and the might and the awesomeness of the almighty God dwelled in Jesus who would go to war for us because we could not go to war for ourselves. The most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. Here's my prayer, my challenge to you this week as we really ramp up this Christmas season. Spend time with Jesus this week and and as you pray, as you read the scripture, look for the things that God did to demonstrate his might. 
you haven't read the Christmas story yet this year, maybe you started in Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two and you just read the Christmas story and you just keep reading and look at all the miracles God performed. Realize that each one of those miracles was just a, a symbolic gesture. It was real, but it was symbolic that Jesus' kingdom was advancing. He was pushing back sin and death and darkness and the devil. And every time he accomplished a miracle on this earth, he was actually showing us that he was going to accomplish something even greater for us in his death and his resurrection. And then just pray, Lord, open our eyes to see your might. That we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, but you are a mighty God. You are fighting for us when we could not fight for ourselves. And then if you've never put your faith in Jesus, last week we got to celebrate Baptism Sunday. We watched people unite their life with Jesus once and for all. Man, I would just encourage you this week, pray, God, what would it look like to hide my life in Christ so that he can go to war for me? Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and your grace. And what a privilege it is to celebrate Christmas together as a church family. I know as we look around this room, we are faithfully doing our best to follow after you with everything we have. But Lord, for the areas that we fall short, for the time when fear and doubt and discouragement begin to creep in, and we want to recoil back to sweet little baby Jesus in a manger, let us remember that even in that moment, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, that he was it was and is the mighty God. The writer of Revelation would say he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that we are either growing in Christ or we are falling far from Christ. Father, that you would draw us ever more into your presence, that we might put our hope, our trust, our confidence in you, that when we fear, when we doubt, when we find ourselves discouraged, facing temptations and trials, we would remember we have a champion who went to war for us and we can find victory in him. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.